0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Moradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are Dr. Gordon Adams, American University Professor Emeritus and Quincy Institute Fellow, Dr. Patrick Cronin, who is the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Everybody, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA is sponsoring our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting next week in Washington, D.C., happening in person. Uh, thankfully, Uh, and check out our weekly CAVUS Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris CAVUS and our producer, Chris Cervello who take a deep dive into Naval issues this week, covering the secretary of the Navy's new guidance, the submarine collision involving the USS Connecticut, uh, a Seawolf class nuclear attack submarine somewhere in the South China sea and uh, the ship disposal process, including uh, the disposal of two uh, great aircraft carriers, conventionally powered aircraft carriers, uh, the Kitty Hawk, uh, and Big John, uh, D- the John F. Uh, Kennedy. And I want to point out that our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine. Uh, everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Michael, as you do every week, start us off uh, certainly a very, very busy week. So we have a temporary debt increase, which will ensure that your holidays are miserable. Uh, God bless. Uh, and uh, it also looks like we're moving away from the $3.5 trillion uh dollar uh democratic package gordon we're going to get your views and dove and and patrick uh a little bit later uh but certainly the president has said this is too big of a lift we need a more moderated package now there are folks who are saying this is in the two trillion dollar range Uh, It certainly will be seen where progressives fall on this, given Bernie Sanders wanted six trillion dollars and that three point five was sort of a lowball compromise, even though that didn't sit well with with uh, moderates, including Democrats and certainly Republicans who'd like to torpedo the whole thing. Walk us through where we are right now. Uh, on the entire process, whether on NDAA appropriations, the whole ball of wax.
1: Great. So let me start with approves and NDAA, because they really are linked to what's going on with the debt ceiling and uh, reconciliation infrastructure. So first, uh, we've talked about approves last week. We, we continue to hear that the Senate Defense Appropriations Subcommittee is going to release their mark on October 15th. Uh, however, I did hear from a senior Senate Appropriations Office yesterday that they're starting to hear that that date might slip. So we have to wait and see. Regardless, there won't be enough floor time, and they're going to have to go straight to conference on appropriations. NDAA, we were hoping, would be on the floor in October. That has now slipped to November. Uh, and there is some serious concern among leaders on the committee that they're going to not have enough time to conference the bill uh, before the end of the year. We hear that every year. I know they, they, and they always figure out how to get it done, some confidence they will, but as you pointed out, you know the real action right now is on debt ceiling, uh, infrastructure and reconciliation, and the more floor time that takes up, the less floor time there is to take care of NDAA and eventually appropriations. So we saw um, the, uh, the Senate come together on a deal on debt ceiling uh, yesterday, uh, and you know McConnell did give them uh, the votes for cloture, so the Democrats could vote on it on their own, uh, which the Democrats did pass at fifty to forty-eight. Um, but, you know, uh, McConnell's getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of grief for what he did. And frankly, I think it's a big mistake. I mean, McConnell did the right thing. He saw the clock had run out on the Democrats. He didn't have enough time to use one of the reconciliation vehicles to, to raise the debt ceiling. And while there was some concern, I think, in, in McConnell world about uh, blowing through the, the filibuster and going nuclear, that w- wasn't really going to happen. Manchin made it very clear that he was not in favor of eliminating the filibuster for the debt ceiling. So McConnell really did. Uh, the right thing for the country and gave the Democrats some more time. And I think the response has been uh, has been wrong. I mean, Schumer uh, attacked uh, McConnell and the Republicans on the floor last night when it was clear that this was going to pass and, and raise the debt ceiling until December 3rd. And as a result, many Republicans came up to him very angry, and including Senator Manchin. Senator Manchin said to the press today that Schumer speech was effing stupid And this just deepens the divide and ensures that Democrats are on their own now to raise the debt ceiling because the extension only goes through December 3rd and that now has created a brand new fiscal cliff because on December 3rd is when the continuing resolution expires so government funding expires and right. now the debt ceiling expires. So the Democrats uh, really uh, are in a box here and and McConnell which, which was know,
0: which was exactly right
1: McConnell's intent was to put him in a box. And that's exactly. exactly what they did. Exactly, and you know what really hasn't reported widely is the reason. Now McConnell wants them to use one of their reconciliation vehicles uh, to raise the debt ceiling is because you know if you just pass a piece of legislation uh, uh, that uh, raises the debt the debt limit, it's to a date certain. But if you use one of the reconciliation vehicles, they have to name a number. So now McConnell's forcing these Democratic senators and Democratic House members to vote to raise the debt limit to a specific number, which now can be used in campaign commercials against them in the 22 election cycle. So also voted to raise the debt limit to 30 trillion or whatever the number is, is going to really sting. And, and that's the box the Democrats are in. And there really is no way out uh, at this point for them. Uh, and now the Democrats now with this being passed, all the focus now is going to be on the infighting with the Democrats. Um, they now think that they have time. Uh, to pass now their infrastructure package and uh, the reconciliation package, um, which, as I mentioned earlier, will take time away from getting NDAA and appropriations done. But that's going to be very difficult for them. I mean, obviously, Manchin was very upset yesterday. And Manchin told colleagues earlier this week that you have to pick one of the three major priorities, whether it's expanding the child tax credit, pay family medical leave, or subsidies um, for for childcare. It's got to be one of the three. And while you know, people Biden has said that maybe this number comes down from 3.5 trillion to around 2.2 trillion. Uh, Manchin's still at 1.5 trillion, and that's not changing. He's not going anywhere. And Bernie Sanders is still at 3.5 trillion. So, and the Democrats <clears throat> have put themselves now in a box with another artificial deadline. Pelosi had to pull the bipartisan infrastructure uh, vote uh, <clears throat> at the end of September. Now the new deadline is October 31st. So she's promising a vote on the bipartisan bill by the 31st, but the progressives are not going to vote on that unless they have the massive reconciliation package to vote on by then too. And there's no way uh, that they're going to be able to meet that deadline. And I've talked to multiple Democrats who were a little more optimistic before, who are now very uh, pessimistic now. So I think we're going to have a very tough October, November, and then we're on a fiscal cliff uh, when we hit December 3rd.
0: Um, look, I think there's a lot of disingenuousness happening uh, because, you know, in four years under Donald Trump, it was something like, you know, seven point something trillion dollars in terms of the debt increase under Obama because of the BCA and a whole bunch of other things over eight years, it was only nine you know, nine trillion or so. So, I mean, everybody is responsible for this. And as we've discussed on this program, Republicans have a tendency of not caring at all about what the debt is, as long as they were the ones doing the spending. I I am a tax and spend guy because I think ways and means have to balance out as opposed to a spend and borrow guy. Because then you're just kicking the can uh, ultimately down the road from a standpoint of fiscal, uh, from a fiscal responsibility standpoint, e- even though there is obviously a big debate about how much more the country
1: can borrow in a great economy and what have you. Speaking of that. That is true. But I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's true. But This really is a self-inflicted ruin on Democrats. I'm not excusing you know the Republicans not supporting raising the debt ceiling, but the Democrats could have raised it. When they passed their initial uh, right. budget resolution earlier this year. And they are the ones who imperiled their own agenda when the president linked uh, the bipartisan infrastructure plan to the reconciliation plan. Then he tried to de link them. And now, as of this week, they are linked yet again. And that, right. I think, dooms them. I'm
0: I I, I uh, you know it's 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 always fascinating to watch something like this and look at people who you think should know better. And one of the things that makes Mitch McConnell the most dangerous man in Washington is he thinks all of this stuff through uh, in order to be able to drive his and and obviously uh, his party's uh, agenda forward. Gordon, how do you uh, respond? Uh, to Michael's observations. And, and how do you think we move forward in this? And how does defense not end up? I mean, my, my model in this is that defense becomes a hostage. It doesn't matter whether or not we need to be investing more to deter China or any other issue. It, you know, at the time we were doing the last debt shenanigans, uh, budget uh, debt ceiling increase shenanigans, you know, the defense wasn't supposed to get hit and domestic spending just, you know, discretionary wasn't going to get hit. And both of them got hit. Where are we? Where are we going? And is uh, our party is actually making catastrophically bad decisions in this process?
2: I have several thoughts of this. I don't full, fully disagree with what Michael says about the traffic jam that is coming. I do have the sense, though, as you were saying, Vago, that uh, Mitch McConnell does not do things without thinking about them. And as the discussion is proceeded, it's very clear what he's thinking about. He wants to put the Democrats in a box. Uh, he was very clear all through these discussions that he was interested in having a number for the debt ceiling, not a suspension of the debt ceiling. And he got what he wanted, at least through December 3. And I think the politics of it play out pretty much around December 3 as they've played out up until the moment when McConnell allowed the sort of two-month delay uh, but he wants a number because the number puts the Democrats in the box. The other thing he's very calculated doing is he wants to stick it to the Democrats in terms of the size of the Build Back Better package uh, and, and force them into a smaller deal. And he and mentioned her eye to eye on that, as well as Kirsten Sinema to the degree one knows anything about what Kirsten Sinema actually wants. She seems more concerned about the tax side than she is about the spending side. Uh, so... That's the box the Democrats are in. But frankly, having missed the option to raise the debt ceiling back in the first Reconciliation Act, which was some months ago, and it's water under the bridge, uh, the Democrats are in this negotiation box. I'm somewhat less crisis focused, I think, than Michael is, because the Democrats know they've been in this box, and they've been haggling this already for a good period of time, and they, they needed and wanted this more time, and that's what they got. Uh, was was more time to work these pieces out together. How do the pieces fall? Highly unpredictable. It does seem to me that the Democrats, including many of the progressives, are coming in towards that $2 trillion figure from the 3.5. There is lots of discussion. I've been talking with people on the Appropriations and Budget side on the Hill about this. There's lots of discussion about how that gets accommodated. Uh, are we going to eliminate things like kids' tax credit, family leave act, child care uh, payments? Are we going to leave uh, eyeglasses, uh, hearing aids for uh, senior citizens uh, people like me would love that kind of thing? But there are, they have two choices. Choice number one is find the things they're going to have to wait on and thereby piss off, frankly, some constituencies in the progressive side of the party, or choose different number of years for which you calculate The costs of the changes in the bill go from a 10 year horizon to a five year horizon, lower the bill as a result of doing that. It's it's a fiscal ledger domain. It's not necessarily a program calculation. But for some of these things, it's a way of lowering the costs and getting towards that five trillion dollar figure. And that's the kind of thing that they're talking about. The fact that the Democrats are actually talking about it, despite the public fireworks that are going on around it that we hear about. Says something I think important. There are very few people now who are not willing to say, let's have a conversation. And believe me, those conversations are going on uh, in the extreme. Can they meet the deadline? Who knows? <laughs> this is the imponderable because all of these things become a train wreck in December. Uh, you know, December 3 for the debt ceiling, by the way, is not a hard target. December 3 is a calculation of what that $480 billion worth of headroom that was given yesterday, when that expires, and therefore when the treasury runs out of options, they cannot use extraordinary measures that's in the, in the bill. So they're just heading for the edge of that cliff, but it's not clear. There are a few people in the Republican side actually who have said, you know, if you look at what we forecast in spending between now and December, this is actually going to give the Democrats headroom until January. I don't know that that's true, but I don't know that it's not true either. So December 3 is not a hard target, right? The CR is a hard target. And so the critical question here, and I think Mike was Mark, Mike was saying that, is, is can they move all the bills, not just defense, but all of the stuff they got to get done for the CR, or do they need to extend the CR? And some of that, we're going to have to see as the projections work between now and then. It's not enti- going to be entirely clear how this is going to pay if, off. So, so you know, fasten your seatbelts, hold on to your
0: hats. We're going to have an interesting eight weeks. But, um, right, I mean, at the end of the day, people want to see competence from leaders, right? Even if it's nefarious, if it's perceived as competent, Mitch McConnell builds the reputation of being competent and knowing how to game and work the system. Well here's Democrats the thing Democrats are I, I'm going sorry through an entirely chaotic process in trying to get there, which well, seems well
2: you know, but Democrats by definition have a chaotic process. So I, I got it Will Rogers,
0: that. I'm a Democrat. Um, I don't belong to a right organized but, political but here's party. the
2: thing what McConnell did not want to see and this is what I think he was heading for was that he pushed the debt ceiling piece now. The responsibility for default was going to have his name on it. This is not something which McConnell wanted So that's Mitch McConnell's trade-off. He's a very, very savvy player. And that was the trade-off that he took. Um, I should say, one other thing thing before I said, is is defense going to be a hostage here? Because he raised that possibility. I do not think so in contrast to, and I'd be interested what Dov and Mike think about this, but, I don't think defense is going to be a hostage. If anything, defense may prove to be the train that pulls the rest of the appropriations through, not for the first time. And I say that because there seems to be pretty general agreement from the votes on in the House and the vote in the committee in the Senate that there is a predominant and overwhelming desire on the part of the Democrats not to be identified as a party that cut defense or didn't let it grow enough. It is going to go up
3: and the question is going to be how much.
0: Dov, your your sense on where we are and where we're going.
3: So a couple of things really. First, uh, I think Schumer's outburst last night showed that he hasn't totally gotten rid of uh, what was normally characterized as, as his behavior, which was to talk before he thought. thought. Uh, if you remember, that's how he was for many, many years. Uh, and McConnell is just the opposite. Uh, so that's one thing he, he's having. Schumer is having a lot more trouble obviously keeping his caucus together, and McConnell does keep his caucus together, and, and that should not be minimized. Uh, so that's one point. Second thing is, I think the big date could well be the end of October. If uh, Pelosi and the Democratic leadership can work a deal where they get their infrastructure vote in, uh, in exchange for mansion and cinema and anybody else, agreeing to a higher number, you might see a deal here. Uh, We've tended to de-link those, uh, uh, not to say de-link in the way you talked about it soon earlier, but de-link the fact that you could have a deal uh, by linking them, but not the way it's been thought about until now. Uh, If that infrastructure vote goes through, Democrats don't look bad, Republicans are in for it, Democrats can then turn around and say, okay, we're going to go with two-point whatever uh, and get Manchin to say, well, look, I got my infrastructure bill, so I will compromise on this other. It could happen. Um, As for defense as a hostage, uh, I had a piece today in The Hill about where I think defense is going to go. Uh, It's not going to be a hostage in the sense that they're going to cut it. I agree with that. I don't know whether beyond whatever the add-on is this year, and it'll probably be in the vicinity of 20, whether the administration will say, well, okay, this is a signal that we have to have real increases in the future. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that in spite of the uh, China uh, incursions right now that uh, Patrick will talk about in great detail, uh, I just don't see this administration... Uh, focusing on the defense side of dealing with China, as much as perhaps uh, other elements, trade, etc. So uh, no cuts in defense. They'll, you know, they'll obviously accept whatever Congress gives them as an add-on this year. Uh, but when we're talking about 23, 24, uh, I just don't see any growth.
0: But before we move on to the international portion of the discussion, because Patrick has been very uh, 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 kind in, in waiting, uh, Gordon thinks there's going to be a deal. Uh, Dove is saying there may be a deal depending on
1: the factors. Where do you fall on this, Michael? Is there going to be a deal or not? Uh, I'm more pessimistic. I do not, but I'll qualify what I'm going to say. I do not believe there's going to be a deal this year, right? Because remember, Manchin said a while ago that he wanted to punt all this into the into calendar year 22, uh, so that's still a possibility. But I think that Manchin has made it clear what his positions are. He's not wavering. And I think that Schumer. Uh, made it much more difficult uh, last night uh, by uh, putting Mansion uh, further away by criticizing what the, M- the Republicans did, because Mansion's the guy that's out there pushing for bipartisanship. He pushed for bipartisanship on the infrastructure bill. Um, you know he, that's the, his reason for not wanting to tank the filibuster. Uh, and and again, as we've said before, it's not just Mansion. It's not just Cinema. There are countless other senators and Democratic members of the House. That are very concerned about what this money is being spent on, how big the numbers are, and the pay-for's as well. So I just do not see this coming together in the short period of time that they have.
0: Uh, and and right, one one person's uh, bipartisanship is another person's sellout or or impediment, right? But I, I do agree. Um, having had conversations with members uh, that um, that it it's not like mansion and cinema are actually outliers. They're the public faces for a lot of other members who who have uh, similar sorts of concerns. Let's move on to the international part of this discussion. Patrick, uh, very very dynamic uh, week uh, in uh, Asia today uh, or yesterday news broke USS uh, Connecticut uh, Seawolf um attack uh, submarine uh, had a collision in uh, the uh, somewhere in the South China Sea that was happened 5 days ago uh, and um you know, every, you know, talk to a friend of mine who said, look, I mean, the whole drive of this was make sure the crew and everybody are safe. Eleven were injured on the ship. Uh, that suggests that she was going fast uh, when she hit something. So it could have been a cargo container or in a transit corridor or what have you, because uh, generally if she was doing something spooky dooky she'd be going a lot slower than that. Uh, but the Chinese have been doing large surge exercises against the Taiwanese, um, uh, uh, coming to the verge of Taiwanese airspace and, and veering away when you get, you know, dozens of aircraft. I think uh, we're, we're beyond 50 now uh, in these formations, you know, is not only to sort of tax the Taiwan Air Force, but it increases the prospects of something going bad. And then we have the Evergrande uh, scandal, the property scandal, which is the tip of a variety of different icebergs that the Chinese are navigating, for example, um, you know, energy shortages uh, and greater reliance on coal power, obviously, which is the country's major thing. Walk us through all of these different storylines and what this week tells us. Um, You know, CIA also launched a new center, right? Finally, amazing that we didn't have that. Walk us through sort of the headlines of the week and what you found most interesting.
4: Well, certainly. Um, and just trying to tie this into the budget uh, discussions, there's, I think there's no doubt the Biden administration is continuing on with the Trump administration's focus on China as a major challenge and the pacing challenge, as the Defense Department calls it. Um, and you see that with the CIA creating a, a mission center just for China uh, and, a, and a new mission center It's pulling together that's on high technology, which clearly overlaps with China as well. Um, and while it's, it's then relegating uh, North Korea and Iran, previous mission centers and putting them back into their regional uh, analytical sort of homes, um, that shows that at least the administration is, is trying to put the spotlight on China. Um, whether it's going to be uh, fully budgeted is another matter, whether it's in the intelligence community or in the defense budget, and there are, there are good reasons to doubt that the resources are sufficient for this priority. Let's talk about Taiwan. The shows of force over the past week have included more than 150 fighters, bombers, ASW, and other aircraft from the uh, People's Liberation Army Air Force, um, and um, they've been flying and flooding into the Taiwan buffer zones. You know the air defense identifications around Pratas Island and other parts of Taiwan's airspace. And these shows of force are not unusual, but the scale of them is unprecedented, and here they're trying to do several things, as you suggested, Vago. Yes, they are trying to send signals to Taiwan to knock it off, if you will. They are trying to send signals to their domestic constituency that, hey, watch over here. We're we're standing up for, for China's nationalism. Um, you know, so pay no attention to the Evergrande real estate, uh, uh, you know, potential default, uh, and the other problems that they're having economically with supply chains and power outages. Um, they're also sending a signal to the United States to um, say, you're gonna face uh, intensified competition with the PLA and with China in the years to come if you and your allies and partners don't uh, stop uh, augmenting your military cooperation. And that includes things like the United Kingdom's carrier operating with Japan and the US in the South China Sea. Uh, It includes things like the AUKUS uh, submarine deal. Uh, where Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom are going to try to come together as a strategic technolo- technological partnership and focus on undersea warfare. I wanna just mention that Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan has an, an amazing article in the current issue of Foreign Affairs. This is November, December, 2021 um, on Taiwan and the fight for democracy. She says two things that I think that are worth calling out. One, if Taiwan were to fall, the consequences would be catastrophic for regional peace and the democratic alliance system." So she's basically underscoring the assumption here, which many hold true uh, in, in both sides of the aisle here in America, that if Taiwan were to be overtaken by force from the mainland, then the entire post-World War II alliance system and US posture in the Indo-Pacific would be completely undercut. She also says, on the more positive side, that Taiwan is ready to stand up and be a global force for good. And I think that has Beijing rattled because here you have Taiwan actually thriving and reaching out um, with great international support. And and meanwhile, the mainland China is having some new difficulties. They're having bumps in the road, economic headwinds that they maybe were not expecting, for instance, no growth in the third quarter of this year, apparently. Um, So I think the Chinese leaders are indeed uh, somewhat, if not desperate, they're very worried about their situation right now. It doesn't portend you know, conflict in the immediate future. Although there, I would add, Taiwan's defense minister has also spoken out this past week and warned that by the middle of this decade, 2025, uh, two years before that Admiral Davidson window, if you will, that China will have fewer barriers to the use of force than they've ever had. And that may portend a potential conflict.
0: And, and we uh, heard uh, yesterday from Hal Brands uh, about China becoming more dangerous as it uh, weakens. He, of course, and Michael Beckley uh, wrote that great piece in foreign uh, policy that we discussed uh, last week. Um, Dove and uh, Gordon, would you accelerate would you suggest that this window of danger is actually much smaller uh, than people think it is? Right. I mean, there's this sense of, well, Phil Davidson was a little bit alarmist, and you know, they have all of the, you know, whole series of problems. But this is what authoritarian regimes do. They miscalculate their own strength relative to an adversary and may conclude that actually it doesn't really get better for us, right? You're jailing billionaires, you're putting pressure on the system. Your view is if I triple down on on communism, I'll grow faster, all of which is actually negative. And a lot of their right, bad decisions over a long period of time are sort of coming to a roost uh, simultaneously. I mean, does, does China, is China actually now becoming much, much more dangerous? Any one of these large scale exercises, if they lose an airplane could be cause causus belli. And ultimately that's how the Chinese think. They want to put Taiwan in a position where something could happen that they could pounce on. And ideally in their strategy, all I have to do is hold the United States off for a week, and I can take Taiwan. As Pollyanna and absurd as that might sound, uh, you know, frankly, as one of them put it, with help from the KMT inside uh, Taiwan, right, which makes it another more complicated dynamic. You know, what, what do you, what do you, what do you think, Dov and Gordon? Uh, real quick to get you guys well, to think
3: on this? I, I am worried, uh, partly because Evergrande is not the only problem they've got. Uh, in the real estate sector, for example, there are three other big ones, r Properties, Sonoc, China Holdings, uh, Country Garden, all big property uh, investors who are far more leveraged than uh, people realize or that they put out in official numbers. And it's not just the property companies, because the banks have been, throughout the banking sector, have been listing these kinds of assets as their assets. So you got this whole house of cards. We don't really know. We never really knew what kind of real growth China had. Correct. Now we know they're in deep, deep, deep trouble. What happens with a country that's in deep trouble? Well, if you go to war, one thing it does is stimulate your economy, by the way. Uh, as you pointed out, there are lots of other good reasons to get involved in a conflict, uh, given what's going on. Uh, you know, they thought that they could choke Australia off by not importing coal. So the price of coal tripled. I mean, they are losing their what they thought was their grip. And I don't think they expected the kind of reaction that the Brits had. Uh, you know, the, the new they, the Brits just appointed uh, a new chief for the first time uh, in 20 years. Who's gonna, who's a naval officer because of China. Uh, The Brits are on top of China. The Japanese, you've got the third prime minister in a row who is basically worried about China. They have not changed their policy of of military uh, development and and modernization and acquisition. If you're sitting in Beijing and you look at all of this and and that's not even including the Uyghurs and, and whatever might happen in Afghanistan and whether the Afghans will become a base for more Uyghur trouble, which the Chinese don't really know. You, you're really gonna be worried. And one of the few vehicles you've got because you can't control the world economy, you can't stop people being allies, you can't stop them coming into the South China Sea. Uh, one vehicle is clearly to do something about Taiwan now. Will they do it? I don't know. But I think uh, Davidson w- certainly wasn't wrong that it could happen in, in the next seven several years and it really
0: could happen sooner. I'm not saying
3: it will, but I think the temptation is going to grow, uh,
0: and and uh, and and that is the danger. I mean, right? And and we should put put into this category. I mean, to to Patrick's point, of everybody sort of marshaling, beginning to increasingly marshal around Taiwan, a democracy, uh, is that is China's behavior, right? So even the French are sensitized to it. Germans are talking about it. Europeans are looking at this and saying, well, wait a minute, this is a democracy that's really being bullied. And if we stand for all the principles that World War II was fought over, um, right? That you're not just a little red dot that every country should be able to have its own determination. It, it becomes uh, very problematic. Gordon, uh, br- bring you into this uh, discussion as well. I mean, do you do you think we're looking at a smaller window Um, of, of, you know, I mean, that's, that's the reason why I've been pushing for speed, speed, speed. I don't think we have time. And, you know, as long as the Chinese think that they may have an edge over us, and we are not responding quickly enough, is the danger zone. Anyway, go ahead. Uh,
2: Yeah, uh, let let me caveat a little bit. um, Some of the things that have been said here. Uh, I am old enough to remember the fracas over Kimoya and Matsu back more than 60 years ago. And the reason I bring that up is because history is important here in terms, I think, of the dedication uh, Beijing has had for a very long time to putting pressure on and at some point ensuring uh, that at some point in the future there can be, and this is Chinese official policy, a peaceful unification of Taiwan with mainland China. And the One China policy has grown out of that. The One China policy that was endorsed by the United States, way back when we recognized China and China took the UN seat and all of that in the nineteen seventies, it's very, you know, very clear that this has been a long-standing piece of China policy. So I'm not dismissing the current leadership, the economic problems that Dove talked about, the ambitiousness of Xi, uh, all, all of those things are stipulated and and on the table, but there is also history on the table here. And Taiwan is the one issue that has been neuralgic for the Chinese communist leadership since the Kuomintang escaped to Taiwan in 1949. Uh, So it's not something new. And I think that's important because Um, it said, let me finish, because it says, uh, this is going to be a touchy issue. Now, yesterday, and it was a, it was an open meeting of the Council on Foreign Relations, so I can refer to it specifically, uh, Ambassador Stapleton Roy, who was for four years the ambassador to Beijing, was born in China, is a long China hand, made a very interesting point, which is that the current leadership in Taiwan has not been as clear about the one China policy as previous Taiwan leadership has been when taiwan and this you can look back on the history of this one taiwan's leadership politically looks like it's leaning towards independence you know independent role in the world diplomatic relationship all those things that stand against the one china policy that all the parties apparently agreed to beijing gets nervous that's the history piece So I'm not gainsaying the current tension, fracas, rising China, all that sort of thing. This is the one piece where Beijing is neuralgic. It is the one piece that I have always been concerned was a point of conflict if it went the wrong way. It's the one thing where moving stuff to the right makes sense that the Taiwanese don't assert independence. The Americans maintain a one China policy. The Chinese position, which is peaceful unification, that's the official Chinese position, and it's been so for many decades, all, all lay as a background for the kind of thing that we're talking about today. So I'm not dismissing the risks of a miscalculation. I think they're real. But I'm not going to say what the Chinese want to do is immediately take advantage of a military balance as they see it and strike on Taiwan. It does not conform to the history of Chinese policy.
0: It depends, right? It depends on when you look at it. China looks at the entire region as historically its own. They've made jokes to that effect about Japan. Uh, They've they even you know it was you know I think it was about fifteen years ago or ten or fifteen years ago in Korea. Well, it's like well everybody knows you know Korea used to be part of historic China. Hmm. Okay, Um, I suppose if you go far enough back, it was all China. Um, I, I guess the question, Patrick, for you is, does the Um, Biden, the Biden administration and some in Washington have been talking about that it's time for the United States to uh, to take an ambiguous stance uh, toward Taiwan and make it unambiguous, that the United States will actually come to the defense of Taiwan. Every single military leader has been talking about war games in which we defend Taiwan against Chinese attack. That is a very specific thing that we're saying to make it clear to China not to miscalculate. Ultimately, the President is even weighed into this. does the does the admin, does the administration need to do this? Would it deter if they did do it um, what's what's your sense on that?
4: The situation is delicate even if it's not likely to lead to conflict in the immediate term um, and Um, removing ambiguity about the status of the one China policy, removing ambiguity by declaring Taiwan essentially a de facto ally, uh, something we severed when we normalized with the mainland, um, would be the testing of the red line that uh, I think Gordon is uh, right to be worried about. Um, Even if that history that I would emphasize, there were other parts of the history, including the six assurances, not, you know, the other aspects of China's um, harassment and pressure strategy that's grown over the years against Taiwan has required some kind of pushback. So we, we've one interesting story this week was the revelation in the Wall Street Journal that Marines and special operations units from the United States had been um, training Taiwan military forces, especially in small boat operations and other uh, aspects of self-defense that seems appropriate in terms of the threat that has been growing against Taiwan. And at the same time, um, the Chinese have been very muted about this revelation, and that's partly because I think they're in a tough spot. On the one hand, they've already unleashed and stoked Chinese nationalism. They're primed to go for an invasion of Taiwan because that's the propaganda they've been listening to and the history they've been listening to for since they've been around. Um, at the same time, um, the leadership in, in, in China knows they do not want an open conflict. They would much rather have a peaceful um, sort of path toward unification. But they see that slipping away right now when Tsai Ing-Wen's writing in Foreign Affairs saying, hey, we're ready to be a global force for good as a democracy. And Taiwan's getting more and more international support because frankly, the mainland is being so aggressive. Um, This is not going China's way at the moment. So this is fraught and it could lead to conflict at some point. It could be sooner rather than later, but nobody uh, is likely to push that button right now today, although there could be accidents.
0: Um, Let me um, just uh, put um uh, bring uh michael into this who's been who's been patiently waiting because we have to wrap it up in about two minutes michael is you know what's what's the sense up up on the hill uh on on this what are what are members telling you about where we are and have you noticed any sort of change in in what they're thinking what they're saying uh in in the wake of this
1: uh you know not as much um Recently, obviously, this is always a topic of conversation, especially when it comes to deciding, you know, how much money we need to spend on defense and what we need to spend it on. China is always at the forefront, but you know, look, I'm I'm always discouraged at um, the lack of reasonableness or uh, really understanding of the whole global geopolitical situation. Sometimes on members of the Hill that they, they you know they're not very diplomatic when it comes to this, and they're not thinking about what uh, what the outcomes are going to be. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I think, you know, our, our relationship with China is much different than it was with the former Soviet Union during the Cold War. You know, we were not economically linked with the Soviet Union as we were, as we are you know, with China today. And I think there's a lot of tough talk, but not thinking about what that talk you know, really, really means at the end of the day. Uh, so, look, I think it, as, as, as it always has been, I mean, this is really going to be at the foot of the administration. And the administration, this new one was off to a very tough start. Uh, with China, but I think they had some encouraging uh, discussions earlier this week. Um, so uh, you know, I think the hill's really more in a, in a rhetoric mode than really in action mode when it comes to this, outside of what we're spending on defense.
0: Um, let me uh, I'm gonna give uh, Dove the last word on the bombing in Afghanistan uh, and and a little bit of update because forty at least forty three were killed uh, in a bombing of a, of a, of a Shiite mosque in Afghanistan. But uh, uh, Gordon, do you think it would be a mistake for the administration to do a recognition? of Taiwan from from that standpoint, right? I mean, I think you make a very important point that it's important to understand your adversary to avoid a miscalculation, which which is uh, very central to this. Um, Do do you think that that would be a mistake from your perspective?
2: Yes, I do think it would be a mistake. And I think it would be interpreted by Beijing as a hostile act. Uh, That said, um, it, it seems to me it is appropriate to continue the effort to ensure deterrence on the the, uh, uh, Allied side in in the Pacific uh, and that uh, the investments that are appropriate to that are appropriate uh, because deterrence is what's going to hold the military balance in check. But yes, I think that would be a a total mistake, a reversal of uh, nearly 60 years of US policy and would be interpreted by
0: Beijing as an exceedingly hostile
2: and unnecessary
0: act. Um, uh, Very quickly before I go to Dove, Patrick, is there Taiwanese independence talk on the rise? I mean, I didn't get a sense that that's the case because I thought the Taiwanese are playing this very, very cool. In fact,
4: well, I agree with that. Um, in fact, I would if if, if State Roy was uh, you know right you know correctly quoted by, by Gordon, um, I think he's mistaken because um, Li dong Hui was much more uh, forthrightly pushing independence than Tsai Ing Wen. Um, yes, the Democratic Progressive Party is associated with uh, an element of the Taiwan Islands that uh, supports independence, but she has been loyally and and very carefully walking a tightrope. What she, what she's resisted is the uh, adopting the one China principle that the mainland has insisted the 1992 uh, agreement, and um, that's because the principle is interpreted from a Beijing perspective, and she's been trying to uh, again walk the tightrope of not moving toward independence, but not accepting, uh, the Beijing interpretation of that. And that has been, uh, you know, stuck in, in, uh, you know, China hates that idea. Um, and they dislike it and they've called her, uh, you know, secessionist and independence movement leader now, and they've written her off essentially as they've written off previous, uh, DPP democratic progressive party, uh, candidates and, and leaders.
0: Um, and, um, Dov, you get the last word, finish us up on uh, China. We've got about a minute left and also uh, give us your sense on what's going on in Afghanistan.
3: Well, on China, the thing is uh, in 96, uh, which I remember because I was advising the Pentagon then, uh, basically Taiwan dragged us into what nearly became a war. Uh, And uh, I think we could explicitly say we're going to defend Taiwan, but I think we would have to link that to explicitly say, under no circumstances, uh, that we can foresee would we support Taiwanese independence. I, I think that unless you link the two, then you really do create more paranoia in Beijing and, and ask for trouble, which could come anyway. On the uh, explosion in, uh, in in that in a, the Shia mosque. What this underscores, first of all, is that the Taliban has lied again because they said they wouldn't go after the Hazaras, which are the Afghan Shias. But more important, it, it tells you that there's going to be real tension between Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts. Look, if the, the Iranians were getting money out of Afghanistan. They also had a trade route to Central Asia through Afghanistan. Um, that they've lost all of that. Uh, And going after the Hazaras on the part of the Taliban is going to inflame the the, uh, Iranians in a very serious way. It could also cause more tension with Pakistan, because everybody knows the Paks are behind the Taliban. And it actually creates uh, a, a possibility, somewhat remote, but not entirely remote, that we and the Iranians could have something to talk about in terms of controlling the Taliban and uh, protecting that minority.
0: Patrick, very briefly, anything you want to add on the Connecticut matter? This was a serious mishap.
4: I think we're going to find out more in the coming days. It's incredible that we found out this incident occurred only on the second of this month so quickly. So uh, clearly it was serious and the Navy and its allies are going to need to focus on how to prevent this kind of mishap going forward.
0: And Dove.
3: Well, uh, I think uh, it's another headache for CNO. This is, comes on top of a second major scandal while Fat Leonard is, is in trial. Uh, the Navy simply has not been able to get out from under one problem after another at a time when it needs to expand and, and modernize to uh, deal with uh, the
0: East Asian issue. Uh, look, it was either training paint as throughout the Cold War. We had a numer- num- numerous collision uh, incidents, but generally those tend to be at lower speed. The fact that so many people were heard suggests that this was a higher speed accident. I have to say, you know, British and French uh, ballistic missile submarines collided because they didn't realize they're both so quiet, they didn't realize they were in the same patch of ocean. So it could have been a collision with another uh, ship in a in a transit corridor when the when it was going fast. So certainly, uh, it's it's good that there was no loss of life uh, that we know of, and uh, and certainly uh, get to the get to the bottom of it. Or you know, if it was a situation where it was somewhat more dynamic between Chinese and U.S. forces, that would be uh, interesting. Guys, thanks very very much. Always an honor and pleasure having you on. Have a great weekend and a great week, and we'll have you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.